We're halfway through our series, The Last Days of the Son of Man, walking through the series of events that occur in the last days of Jesus' earthly ministry. First, we looked at the triumphal entry, the grand moment when Jesus enters Jerusalem, fulfills a host of prophecies, and is recognized as king. Then we had the cleansing of the temple, in which Jesus dramatically condemned the corruption of the temple's original purpose and design. So, so far, we've seen two grand public events, things that shook Jerusalem to its foundation. But the story we will explore today is a smaller, more intimate story. Instead of a royal arrival in a public square or a dramatic confrontation in the temple courts, we have a small dinner party with good friends. And yet the questions raised by the thing that takes place at this dinner party are some of the deepest and most significant ones a person will ever ask. In Matthew's gospel, the triumphal entry and the cleansing of the temple are followed by several chapters of teaching and debate. And after that, Matthew begins a new section with this. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days, the Passover is coming and the son of man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Matthew 26, 1 through 5. For Matthew, when Jesus had finished these sayings is the standard way to transition from a teaching section to a narrative section. Interestingly, though, this time, and only this time in the entire book, he includes the word all. Jesus has finished all of these sayings. He's communicating to us that this is not just the conclusion of this particular section of teaching, but the end of his recording of Jesus's earthly teaching ministry completely. We're entering the last act of Jesus's earthly life. This is the beginning of the passion narrative. And the tone is appropriately ominous. In just five verses, we see Jesus predict his death to his disciples and the enemies of Jesus conspiring to murder him. That's what precedes the story we're about to read. And as if that weren't enough, the story that will immediately follow it is the story of Judas making his arrangements to betray Jesus. So we have predictions of death, plots of murder, and betrayal by a close friend. And while all of this is unfolding, we're brought into a dinner party at a man named Simon's house. Let's read. Now, when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you will always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Matthew 26, 6 through 13. So Jesus is in a town called Bethany at the house of a man identified as Simon the leper. And Bethany is a significant place. It's the town in which Lazarus was raised from the dead. In fact, John's account of the story clarifies that Lazarus and his sisters are both present at this dinner. Now, we don't know much about Simon, but it's odd that someone with the title the leper can host a dinner party. He clearly had suffered from leprosy long enough to acquire that name, but he certainly didn't have it anymore, or there's no way he could have guests in his home. So is it possible that he was one of the lepers healed by Jesus? The text doesn't say that for sure, but it's a beautiful possibility. And if it's the case, then Jesus is eating dinner with a man who was healed of leprosy and a man who he has raised from the dead. I mean, what an incredible setting. Now, while he's there, a woman approaches Jesus and does something extraordinary. 
Matthew, interestingly, leaves her unnamed, but John identifies her as Mary, the sister of Lazarus. This is the Mary from the Mary and Martha story that you may be familiar with. She was a devoted disciple of Jesus who had sat at his feet to hear him teach. She comes to Jesus with an alabaster jar filled with unbelievably expensive perfume. She pours it on Jesus, anointing him. And the disciples immediately react with criticism. What's wrong with this woman? How could she waste something so valuable? And on the surface, according to common sense, they'd be right. Matthew calls it very expensive. But Mark and John both tell us that the jar contained pure nard, an amazingly costly oil, usually imported from India or another place to the east. And it was worth 300 denarii. And just to put that in perspective, when Jesus is preparing to feed the 5,000, his disciples say that to provide food for that crowd would cost 200 denarii. That means that this precious oil cost 50% more than it would have taken to feed a crowd of over 5,000 people. It goes without saying that this is not the common oil with which one would anoint a regular guest. The value of this flask of ointment was literally a year's wages. So imagine for a second, a single jar of liquid worth $50,000, $100,000? No wonder the disciples reacted the way they did. I mean, how would you have reacted? It'd be hard to see it as anything other than a needless extravagance, a waste of something that could have been used for better purposes. So they're critical of her. But the specific complaint is that she could have sold the alabaster flask of pure nard and given those massive proceeds to the poor. Now, it's hard to know if their concern for the poor is genuine or if it's a display of false piety designed just to justify their negative response to what they just witnessed. And I don't know about you, but that would be just like me. It's easy to look at someone else and imagine that given the same resources or the same advantages, you would do the morally superior thing. But what we do know is that at least for one of them, there's an underhanded motive involved. John's account of this story tells us that Judas, in particular, expressed outrage on behalf of the poor, but that what he actually wanted was to be able to take some of the money for himself, since he was the one who was in charge of the group's finances. So that is the disciples' response to what Mary's done. Jesus has a dramatically different one. Let's look again at the first part of his response to her. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. Matthew 26, 10 through 11. The disciples say it is a waste and foolishness. Jesus says it is a beautiful act. Then he says something that might strike us as strange. He says, you will always have the poor with you. On the surface, this sounds kind of callous. Like, doesn't Jesus care about the poor? And the answer is, of course he does. In fact, if you go back just one chapter, caring for the needy was a central part of his last teaching discourse. Care for the least of these was central to the life and ministry of Jesus. And more than that, what Jesus has just said is not a random statement, but a quotation from the Hebrew Bible. He's quoting from Deuteronomy 15, and the whole verse says this, For there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy, and to the poor in your land. Deuteronomy 15, 11. So Jesus makes it clear in his actions and teaching that he cares for the poor, and even the very passage that he chooses to quote reinforces that idea. Jesus is not saying that the use of this costly oil was right because the poor didn't matter. He approves of it because he sees in it something that he says is beautiful. What is it? And Jesus says that it's to prepare him for burial. Ordinarily, it would have been customary to use oil such as this, although rarely this costly, as part of the burial process when a loved one died. However, Jesus is about to die the death of a criminal. And in those cases, honors and rituals like this would have been skipped. Now, Mary, 
whether knowingly or unknowingly, has stepped in and almost skipped ahead to do her part in honoring the significance of the death of Jesus. And the costliness of this display is not a waste at all, but is beautiful in the eyes of Jesus. What Mary demonstrates is pure, unadulterated love and devotion to Jesus. She does not give a half-hearted or lukewarm offering. She doesn't care what this is going to cost her. She doesn't care what other people will say about her or what anyone else will think. She also doesn't care how much this is going to cost her financially. There's no calculation involved. She knows the goodness of Jesus. And she loves him so much that she literally pours out the most precious and costly thing that she has upon him. It's a deeply sacrificial display of love and faith. Now think again about the disciples. The kind of external reason for their frustration at what Mary does is all about concern for the poor. They say, why this waste? She could have helped countless other people. But what they've missed is the supreme value of the one who was in their presence at that moment. It's almost as if they're so consumed by what they ought to do that they have bypassed the very one who they are meant to do it for. They're so concerned for the greater good that they have missed the fact that goodness itself stands before them. And this pitfall remains equally common today. This jar of oil reminds us that we must not try to develop a heart for missions, a heart for the poor, a heart for justice, apart from having a heart for Jesus Christ. To do so leads inevitably to one of two grave mistakes. The first is what we can think of as the sincere mistake. This is what happens when we pursue good works, but those good works themselves become our ultimate aim. When we pursue good works for their own sake, however sincerely we may do that, we run the very real risk of placing the pursuit itself, however good it might be, at the top of our affections. You might just find yourself worshiping mercy, worshiping justice or charity instead of the God who calls us to pursue them. And those things cannot bear that kind of weight. They were never meant to. But the second and more likely mistake is what we can think of as the selfish mistake. This is when we end up pursuing justice and mercy in a calculated way, in order to justify ourselves to ourselves or to others. We end up trying to work out how little we can give and still be in good standing. Instead of being driven by love for Jesus, we ask, what is the smallest, what is the least valuable thing that we can respectably pour out and still feel like we have done right? Good works untethered from ultimate devotion will always run these risks. Any efforts to do good in this world that are pursued apart from him will always be in danger of becoming idolatrous or becoming self-centered. So this story is all about the cart and the horse of love and service. Selfless care for others must spring forth from supreme love for God. So the question to ask yourself today is, do you love him? Not what have you done for him lately or how much are you serving or how much money do you donate every year, but do you love him. See, it's easy to stand with the crowd at the triumphal entry, palm branch in hand. It's easy to applaud when he turns over the tables of the selfish money changers. But it's another thing entirely to love him as Mary did, to love him so much that you pour out all you have for him. Love like that is always the first thing that Christians must pursue. And the rest of our good behavior and good works is the natural and inevitable outflow of that love. Now, the final thing that Jesus says to close this story is easy to jump past, but it's incredibly significant. He says, truly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. 
Jesus says that anywhere the gospel is preached, this story will be a part of it. Now, first of all, the fact that this story is here in Matthew's gospel means that the disciples heard and obeyed what Jesus said in that moment. As they wrote their own gospel accounts, they told this story just like Jesus said they would. And as we tell it today, we continue to fulfill the words of Jesus. But the other profound thing about this moment is that Jesus, in this statement, is drawing the connection between the gospel, the good news, and his own death. Remember how this story fits in the narrative. First, we have Jesus predicting his death to his apostles. Then we have Jesus' enemies plotting his death. Then we have this story of the anointing, followed by Judas betraying him. This entire section is about the death of Jesus. Jesus knows that his death is imminent, and he connects this anointing to it by saying that Mary is preparing him for burial. But this final statement makes it clear that the death that is to come will not be in vain, but will be the core of the announcement of good news that will be proclaimed in the whole world. His death will be good news. You see, Mary is not the only character in the story who will pour out everything because of love. She's not the only one who's willing to love at great cost. The very one upon whom she pours the most costly thing she had was preparing to pour out the most costly thing the world had ever known, the life of the only Son of God on behalf of those he loves. But even in this moment, he knows that his death will lead to a worldwide announcement of good news, that the grave did not have the last word, that Jesus has defeated death, and that all who put their trust in him will live forever with him. It's the ultimate act of love. And in this love is freedom for us, freedom from hopeless attempts at self-justification, freedom from the endless calculations of good deeds and bad. And the first and primary response to that love is to love him in return and to let that love be the catalyst for all that we do. As John wrote, we love because he first loved us.